So if you could turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 16, we're going to be continuing our evening series in the Psalms. And um, in this particular case, when you read a psalm, you have to ask yourself the question, you know, how do we live in light of the covenant? And that is the purpose of psalms and wisdom literature. And so we're going to see that here, David is giving us a, a view into the good life. Hear the word of the Lord. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. So some of the things that kids are saying these days, one of their sayings is uh, living your best life. And so, for instance, how this is used is they might see a picture of a dog with sunglasses lying in the sun or on a beach towel and enjoying itself, and they'll say, that dog is living its best life. Or you could be doing something moderately enjoyable even, and suddenly you're looking at your friend at RTS and saying, man, boy, aren't we living our best life? So this reminds me, and it should remind you, of a remarkably similar idea that we're exposed to in Christian culture of a well-known book by a certain famous pastor called Living Your Best Life Now. And so we may question why people like that, especially in the church, but in reality there is something very clever about it where it's finding some grounding in an undercurrent of our culture, where we live in a culture where living your best life really is valued. And we, don't we all want to live our best life? I do. But in this text, we're going to see that God does provide us a way to live our best life, but we see that there are two paths before us. There's the world's way to, sorry, there is the world's way to our best life, and there's God's way. And so this text teaches us that we only find our good in God alone. We only find our good in God alone, and we see that in three ways. The first is by binding ourselves to him, and we only find our good in God alone by making him our possession. And we only find our good in God alone by committing our souls to him. And so we only find our good in God alone by binding ourselves to him. And the first way that we bind ourselves to him is when we call to him in distress. Look with me at verse 1. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So the sense of this verse is that David is appealing to God, saying, Lord, because of my taking refuge in you, because of the faith I've placed in you, preserve me, take care of me. It's like a little child that is doing something, possibly that could get something hurt, maybe like mine if you know my son Matthew, 
And he will say, Daddy, watch me. Daddy, watch me. And I'm supposed to watch him and make sure he doesn't fall as he's walking along a wall or something like that. So, and David is, is not as churlish, perhaps, as a child, but he's saying, preserve me, watch over me, guard my steps, O God, because I've taken refuge in you. And David finds God worthy to take refuge in because he confesses him as Lord. Look at verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So Yahweh, our covenant God, David is saying, Yahweh is my Lord. So not Dagon with the Philistines, not Molech with the Ammonites, not the, the Baals or the Asherah, but God and God alone is David's, is, it's David's highest good. It's the, the thing that he, the, the holy God that he grabs onto that he can find no value outside of God. So I think in our hearts, well, let's just say in the heart of humanity, when we worship false gods, we are using them as a means to an end. So Muslims, for instance, when they worship Allah, they're worshiping him out of servile fear in order to obtain paradise. And you could go on with all sorts of religions and find that these false gods are just a means to an end. But David here, when he says that I have no good apart from you, he is saying that God, Yahweh himself, is the end. You can't use Yahweh as a means to an end. He is the end itself. We have nothing beyond him to which we are looking forward to, simply God himself. And because of that, he is worthy to take refuge in and worthy to call upon in distress. And so David, he binds, he binds himself to God and we bind ourselves to God when we delight in his saints. So those who share that confession, that they have no good apart from God, they're able to look at other people with that same confession. So these would be your fellow church members, your fellow Christians. And they say, the people who have made God Yahweh their Lord, I delight in those people. And that's why as a seminary student, I can come to Jackson and I when I first got here, I didn't know any of you from Adam, but I had fellowship with you by the Holy Spirit because of our, you know, same confession of faith, that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we have salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And because of that, I have more in common with you than I do with people more similar to me, and that transcends every boundary that you could think of. So, likewise, we see that when we bind ourselves to the saints, we also reject idolatry. Look at verse 4. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So in this case, the opposite is true. Even if you grew up with someone and you were the same race, same socioeconomic background, same education level, maybe you went to the same college even, everything's the same, 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 but they don't live lives that are changed by the grace of God in salvation, you have almost nothing truly in common with them because God's grace makes all the difference in this case. And so here, David's saying, unlike me, those who, uh, those, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So sorrows in this case can also be translated as sorrows, but also grieving. So the, the grieving, the constant dissatisfaction, the anger, the tension of living a life at war with God, 
those things multiply as life goes on for these people who do not share our confession. And so we can't afford to have sort of a, I'm going to call a small g God insurance. So the people of Israel, it's not that they weren't doing the things that they were supposed to do at the temple necessarily. I mean, there are times where Israel was completely departed from it, but they would have a mixed worship where they would go to the temple, offer their sacrifices, but then they might go off and, you know, go worship Baal with their friends or so on and so forth. So they're trying to cover all their bases because they thought these gods kind of had, you know, equal power and authority depending on the situation at hand. And so if a group like the, the Moabites were in power, the people would tend to go, well, Moab's, Moab's God's better than Yahweh. I'm going I'm to go hang out with them for a little while and, you know, cover my bases. And so David is, is abominating that. He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So no matter what is happening to David, no matter what the circumstances are in their life, in his life, and in our lives, David is saying, I have no good apart from God, apart from Yahweh, apart from Christ, no matter what happens to me. And so I'll, I'll give you an example here, a little bit of a lighthearted example. Consider college football. So many of you in here are Mississippi State or Ole Miss fans. I'm sure there's other stragglers like LSU-type uh, fans like your senior pastor. But um, for the most part, Ole Miss and Mississippi State, you agree on a few things. You agree that you don't like each other when you play each other. You generally might root for each other if, you don't, if, they're, if you're playing someone you don't like. But for sure, you agree that Alabama football is a cult. For example, if your team is playing Alabama, if Ole Miss is playing Alabama, you would never chant chants with the Alabama fans. You just wouldn't do it. You wouldn't sing their fight song. You wouldn't do anything like that. It's, and so in the same way, we can sometimes get caught up in a mixed sense of worship. But for us, it's a little bit more insidious. It's not as clear-cut as football because we're dealing with sin in human hearts. So how often do we go to church but then our habit patterns, the other six days of the week, don't reflect a Christian worldview. How often do we trust God to take care of us no matter what happens? The world could fall apart, but we're going to trust in him. But I'm also going to you know, have these little nest eggs over here just in case things go wrong. So it's not bad to have nest eggs. But if we're putting our faith in something other than Christ, and that's our staking our future, our destiny on anything other than Christ— we're in serious trouble. But luckily for us, the Holy Spirit residing in us sees those things. And one by one, if you're an experienced Christian, you know this pattern, one by one, he's going to take those idols away or show them how ineffective they are, and he's going to draw you to Christ. So this is not a call for you to become an ascetic monk and to give away everything that you have. But this is a call to... Make Christ your soul confession and your soul trust, just like David has. And we don't have to imagine situations that were much worse than David's at times, either being chased by Saul, fighting giants, um, being chased by his own son. David had lots of opportunities to pray this, but he prayed it. And we can take his example and know that because Christ also suffered for us, that Christ understands what we're going through. He did not give in to sin, but he knows the frailty of human weakness, and he knows how to help us. 
and we can trust in him. And so in that way, we can bind ourselves to God because we can only find our good in him. And we only find our good in God alone by making him our possession. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So in this case, what David is saying is he's saying that Yahweh himself, after he's bound himself to him, he makes him his possession. He says that Yahweh is the the portion among portions, the most choice thing that he could ever have himself. And the idea of the cup is this idea of destiny. So not only does David have this possession of Yahweh, but he wraps his destiny, he stakes his future on possessing God. And he's not upset about it. He says, no matter what, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You know, the, the, the locusts could eat all of our crops. Every enemy could attack on every side. But the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Even when I'm in a cave, hiding from Saul, scared for my life, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a beautiful inheritance. Amen. And do we pray that? I don't pray that. I'll be honest with you. It's it's very easy to slip into a pattern where we are not willing to say that. We think that God has held out on us, that there's something missing, that he owes us something. And all of our dissatisfaction is, is proof that we're not in the right place. We're not trusting in God the way we should. So we should take our cue from the Levites. So you remember that when the Levites inherited the land, well, they That's the trick. They didn't. When the Israelites inherited the land, God said about the Levites that they would not inherit a portion of land with the rest of the tribes, but God himself would be their portion. And so think about uh, one of my favorite Levites. So uh, Asaph, who wrote many of our Psalms, he probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible, set of verses in the Bible were, so in Psalm 73, 25 through 26, he says, "'Whom have I in heaven but you?' There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So King David, he had everything. And he's still able to say that God is his portion. He was adopting a Levitical mindset that God is the only true and lasting thing that he could possess above all things. This man had everything. You know, at one point he's hiding in a cave, but the next thing he knows, God's defeated all of his enemies. But still he says this. God is his portion and his beautiful inheritance. And it's a beautiful inheritance that benefits us. Look at verse 7. So we see God gives David wisdom. He says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. So we're not just possessing and abstract God. We're possessing a God who dwells with us, who encourages us, who teaches us, one who has given us his law for us to obey and to understand. And so David says that, you know, God instructs him in the night and he gives him counsel. So imagine not just wisdom, but also conviction of sin. This is a God that sets us straight, who loves us and takes care of us and gives us his law and the fear of him that gives us wisdom. And it ends, helps us end up being like the Psalm 1 blessed man, who is Christ, but us, helps us be Christ-like. 
where we can meditate on the law of the Lord day and night and receive that wisdom and that counsel that he provides. And because of that, we will not be shaken. Look at verse 8. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So David has set Yahweh himself at the center of his affections in his heart. And because of that, and we talked about this, but the circumstances, they can't truly shake him. We may feel the ground shaking under our feet, but we ourselves, when Yahweh is truly our Lord, we will not be shaken. We don't have to fear because we know that God is with us. And God is with us in Christ. And that's why we have, God is called, or Jesus himself is called Emmanuel, God with us. Those are his covenantal promises that are in his name. I'm not going to you know, bore you with the Hebrew, but God's covenantal name, Yahweh itself, is a promise that he will be with us. The I am will be with you. He's the I am at every single point of our walk with him, and we can trust him. And so God does not tolerate rivals in this case. Remember that the rich young ruler, he thought that he could follow the law perfectly, and he had. And he goes to Jesus and says, I've followed this, you know, what do I need need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, well, you know the commandments, you know, do not steal, do not covet, so on and so forth. And do this and you will live, which was a trick question. And this man, you know, foolishly says, I've done all these things from my youth. Let me tell you how good I am. And then Jesus says, ah, you've lost, you forgot one thing. It's like, do this. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me, be my disciple. And so the lesson from that is not that Jesus is saying, okay, in order to inherit eternal life, again, you need to become a monk. That's not the lesson. Jesus saw that this man's riches were his true God. And that he had to remove this God from his midst in order to be a follower of Christ. And so, in our terms, we should think about it like this, as sheep. So the sheep do not possess the grass that they eat and that they sleep on. The real possession, if you think about it, is the shepherd himself. So if we possess the shepherd, it's because the shepherd has already possessed us. So we ourselves are like the rich young ruler, not perhaps in our riches, but in other ways. But we need Christ himself to possess us so that we can make him our possession. And so if you see yourself in a strange tension that you can't break, where you're caught between your idols and Christ and you have competing loves, you're in a hard situation and your only way out of it is to pray. I have no other good advice for you. And my only advice, true advice to you, is you have to go to Christ in prayer and just confess, Lord, I'm caught in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. I have idols I can't get rid of. I can't stop sinning. Who can help me? You know, what, is, what does Paul say? Who can save me from this body of death? But praise be to God, it is Jesus Christ who has broken the bonds of death and leads us into green pastures. So we need to make him our possession because he has possessed us. And so finally, we find our good in God alone by committing our souls to him. Look at verse 9. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And so we see here that this dwelling securely is like the joy of salvation all over again. 
This isn't some sort of esoteric, you know, Buddhist humming where we're like, mm, sitting on a rock and, you know, gaining wisdom automatically through processes that we don't understand. No, this is a, a tangible joy dwelling securely found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And he says, therefore, because of that, we can dwell securely and he will resurrect us. Let's look at verse 10. This is the, the big verse in the chapter, if you will. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So David has such a strong confidence and Christ as his rock, that he knows that death will not have the final say over him. From a human perspective, it kind of looks like it did. And even Peter admits that at Pentecost. He says, when quoting this verse, David's tomb is still with us. You know, his, his bones are in there. But he says, but that's because David was not writing chiefly about himself, but he was looking forward to the Holy One who would not see corruption. And he says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead. So what does that mean for us, that he was raised from the dead? Well, if we have union with him, if we have faith in him, if we've made him our possession, we've bound ourselves to him, we also, like David, will one day rise, and death will not have the final word over us. So Christ died and was buried, and he, it says that he descended into, you know, our Apostles' Creed says Hades, but we can say just that he went into the ground and he was dead. You know, it's, there's a whole debate I won't get into there, but it says you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to the grave, to Sheol, whichever word you want to use. And because of that, we also, when we die, we know that we will not be abandoned there because Christ had his, that Christ had his father turn the back, his back on him on the cross for us so that our backs or our face would not have God's back turned on us at the final judgment. We need Christ. We need him so much. And so finally, we see that we will delight in him forever. So after this resurrection, it says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David is looking beyond the grave. He's looking to what the resurrection life looks like. And we see that, it's a, that this path of life is, uh, is Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And that at, in the presence of God, we're not just going to be, you know, going on speedboats, water skiing, going fishing, going hunting, all the fun stuff that we actually might end up doing in, in the new heavens and new earth. But the chief hope that we have is to see God face to face much like Moses did in a limited way, but we'll see him fully face to face. And that's our true hope of the new heavens and the new earth. And that we'll have fullness of joy and pleasures in the presence of God forever. But it's, you know, I'm not going to say that death, the path to get there, living in Christ, and then dying is an easy one. Death is very hard to face. I'm a young man, and I, Lord willing, hope to one day be old, but it's a scary prospect. You never know what the day that God has appointed for you, and you never know when anyone's last moments are to repent. But we know that, know that if you are in Christ, that you can be encouraged by God's being raised from the dead, and I'll give you another way to view this. So in Pilgrim's Progress, at the very end of the story, Christian and hopeful, they are 
at the, the river of death. And so that is their last obstacle before they can get to the celestial city. And the shining ones tell both of them, you know, that the depth and the raging of the river and the terror you feel will be based upon the faith that you have. And so when Christian goes in, the waters go over his head. He feels like he's not going to make it. He struggles badly. But hopeful, on the other hand, the water is around his knees, and he, as he's walking through, it's very easy for him, and he can see the gates of the celestial city open before him. And so he's able to encourage Christian, who's under the water, and he says, Christian, look, there he is. And what does Christian do? He, he looks up and says, oh, I see him. He sees Christ, and that leads him through. Because it's not about our, our doubts. It's not about how good we are at dying, if there is such a thing. It's about Christ. And if you belong to him, whether the waters rage over your head or you walk through easily, he's the one leading you to the end and to him. Our final destination is Christ. We have no good apart from him or beyond him. So let us die in faith. Let us die to self. Let us do the daily death to our sin, nailing it to the cross where our debt was paid by Christ. Church, you have to believe this. If you call yourself a Christian this evening, you have to believe that Christ is your only hope in life and death. And if he is your only hope, that he will deliver you safely to him. We are the people of the new age. This present world is dying and passing away. But if you're in Christ, we have a glorious future in the heavenly places and we can trust him for it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for the ways that we've departed from you, where we have forgotten you, that we have gone after other gods. Lord, I pray that you would remove them from us and that we would see your merciful hand in them. Lord, I pray that you would help us see that because you have possessed us, we can possess you all the more and that we can trust you even to the death. Lord, all these things are good because they are from your word.